As we turn to God's Word again, we're reading first from Ezekiel's prophecy, beginning in chapter 2 and verse 1. Ezekiel 2 and verse 1. We're reading through chapter 3 and verse 3, and and we're going to skip to a a bit later here in chapter 3 to verse 12 and read through verse 14. This is God's inspired and infallible word. Then he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. As he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. Then he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. I am sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Thus says the Lord God, as for them, whether they listen or not, they are, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words, though thistles and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions, neither fear their words or be dismayed at their presence, for they are a rebellious house." But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious. Now you, son of man, listen to what I am speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I am giving to you. Then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. Then he spread it out before me. And it was written on the front and back, and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll, and go, speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he fed me this scroll. He said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach, and fill your body with this scroll which I am giving to you. Then I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. Verse 12, Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard a great rumbling sound behind me. Blessed be the glory of the Lord in this place. And I heard the sound of the wings of the living beings touching one another, and the sound of the wheels beside them, even a great rumbling sound. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away, And I went embittered in the rage of my spirit, and the hand of the Lord was strong on me. Revelation chapter 10, verses 5 through 11 is our text. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Revelation 10, beginning at verse 1. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, 
and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little scroll which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished, as he preached to his servants, the prophets. And the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again, speaking with me and saying, Go, take the scroll which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. So I took the little scroll out of the angel's hand, and I ate it, and in my mouth it was sweet as honey, and when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Amen. Be seated, please. And let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the testimony of your word, the testimony that it gives to us of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we give thanks, O Lord, for the great revelation that you've given of our Savior. Uh, the beauty and the glory of Christ exhibited in the scriptures. And we pray uh, that by the Spirit's help now, you would grant us insight and understanding into your holy word. As we delve into the deep things of scripture, would you grant to us the help of the Spirit and his illumination? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our text this morning is situated in the third of the seven cycles of visions in Revelation. The first cycle, remember, is a a vision of Christ. Uh, John sees a vision of Christ in in, uh, the first chapter, uh, and and then a vision of the the seven churches to whom he's to write the seven letters in in chapters 2 and 3. And then 
the second cycle of visions is of uh, the scroll that's sealed. Uh, the scroll and, and the seven seals in chapter 4, verse 1 through chapter 8, verse 1. And then the third, where we find ourselves now, is the vision of the seven trumpets, chapter 8, and verse 2 through 11, and verse 19. And just as Revelation 7 presents an interlude between the sixth and seventh seals, so Revelation 10 is part of an interlude between the sixth and seventh seals. Trumpets. Remember these two uh, visions, the, the visions of the seals and, and trumpets. These are, are uh, similar trumpets. They, the, the judgments that they announce reinforce one another. Uh, they're cumulative. Uh, they have a, 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 a cumulative effect, we could say. Uh, and, and so now as we come uh, to chapter 10, uh, there is uh, a, another interlude. Uh, just like we had in, in, in that vision of the seven seals. In the, in the case of uh, the, the first six, the interlude after the first six seals, there, there in chapter 7, uh, John was shown that, that God had sealed the church for salvation and delivered her safely out of the great tribulation. With respect to the trumpets, this portion of the interlude in chapter 10 is a welcome relief from uh, the, the horrible visions of the demonic armies in chapter 9, symbolizing the satanic uh, forces at work in the tribulation the Great Tribulation uh, in the first century that was taking place in the first century church, which would only intensify. However, as we noted in our exposition of chapter 9, although this, this vast army that chapter 9 describes, these hordes of locusts that uh, symbolize this vast army of demons and uh, the, 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 army, the, the armies of horses, the, the 200 million uh, here that we see in, in chapter 9 and, and uh, verse 14, and those who sat on them, um, these are under God's control. These are not uh, forces that are uh, beyond restraint. God is, is restraining it, and, and that's, that's apparent by what God says here in chapter 9 uh, when we read the sixth angel sounded, uh, the, the sixth, this is the sixth trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which was before God, one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great Euphrates, and the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released so that they, so that they would kill a third of mankind. Now, there are two, two restraints here at work. In the first place, God is the one who's releasing uh, these demonic hordes, 
uh, that we read about in the rest of the chapter there, but uh, there's also restraint on, on uh, the extent of, of the destruction that, that they carry out upon uh, the earth. God is completely sovereign, we said, as we were talking about these satanic forces. And so he uses both demons, including Satan himself, and pagans to accomplish his purposes. Chapter 10 serves to underscore this important point. It centers on the descent of a glorious figure from heaven called the strong or mighty angel, bringing with him a little scroll. Everything about the description of this strong angel of Revelation 10 leads us to the conclusion that this can be none other than Christ himself. That's clear enough when uh, the description of this angel in verse 1 is compared with uh, the vision uh, of Christ in chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, uh, and other portions of Revelation. When we look at verse 1, we, we saw last week that uh, this strong angel coming down out of heaven was clothed with a cloud. The, the rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun. His feet like pillars of fire. Uh, his right foot on the sea, his left on the land. He towers over uh, the earth. Uh, he has a voice like a lion. Again, we have this association with uh, the lion uh, of the tribe of Judah, this is Christ. There's no question but that this is Jesus Christ himself. It's a picture of Christ's comprehensive lordship over the earth and all that's on it, the sea and all that's in it. So chapter 10 begins by assuring us that though Satan rages, Christ reigns, and his kingdom will come according to God's decreed plan. Verses 5 through 11 reveal that the means through which Christ exercises his sovereignty over the world is the powerful testimony of the gospel. In our text, Christ, the divine witness, recommissions John to prophesy concerning gospel triumph and judgment. Christ, the divine witness, recommissions John to prophesy concerning gospel triumph and judgment. We have here, in the first place, Christ's testimony as the faithful witness, and secondly, John's recommissioning as a prophetic witness. So then, in the first place, Christ's testimony as the faithful witness. The strong angel that John saw standing with one foot on the sea and one foot on the land now lifts up his right hand to heaven and swears by him 
who lives forever. Verses 5 and 6. This is a, the proper stance for a witness in a court of law. Now, some commentators have taken this as a basis for holding that this angel isn't Christ, apparently regarding his swearing an oath as somehow below his dignity or, or out of accord with the character of his divinity. But it's clear, if you know your Old Testament, that God often swears oaths, doesn't he? That's clear throughout the scriptures. One of the most fascinating, I think, at least, is in uh, early on in, in, uh, the Old, in Old Testament Revelation where, uh, where uh, in, in Genesis 15, God, is, God has already made covenant with Abraham. He's already given uh, Abraham covenant promises. But he's reiterating these covenant promises here in Genesis chapter 15. And there's a, uh, there's a promise of a son here. Uh, uh, Abram complains that, that he has no heir, that uh, his servant Eliezer and his, house, and his household is, is destined to be his heir because he has no son. And God says, no, Abraham, you, you go outside, you look at the stars. If you can number the stars then so many, so many shall be your descendants. I'm going to give you a son. And then he gives him a promise of the land. And when he gives that promise of a land, uh, he, he swears that he will give the promise of, that, of the land. Um, and and, the, and the, the oath that, that he swears is a self-maledictory oath. It's, a, it's, a, it's an oath that's used in, in the Old Covenant. Uh, it's an oath that says, if I don't carry out the words of this oath, I'm going to bring harm to myself. And you remember what happens after that. that uh, this is a vision to Abram uh, at this point. Uh, and uh, God tells him to, to slay animals, to divide them in half. And, and God passes through the midst of, of these animals in the form of a uh, smoking oven and, and a flaming torch. And by means of this vision, swears to Abraham that he will keep the promise that he made to him concerning the land. And then Hebrews Chapter 6, verses 13 to 20, informs us that our salvation is based on God's faithfulness to his covenant oath. That that, that covenant oath is the, the very ground uh, of our Christian assurance and hope. There's a When God made the promise to, to Abraham, we read here, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having waited patiently, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and, and with an oath they give 
and an oath is given as a confirmation as an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of his promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, that is the promise and the oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Does God take oaths in Scripture? Why, yes, he does. And Christ, the faithful witness, is standing in, uh, in uh, the position. He takes his stance as a witness, and he raises his right hand to heaven, and he swears to the Creator. He swears to the one who created heaven and all things in it, the earth and all things in it. The one who stands on the sea and the earth swears to the Creator of all these things. Christ is presented here in the position of of a witness as in chapter 1 and verse 5 where he's called the faithful witness. Chapter 3 and verse 14, the faithful and true witness. Uh, We noted last time that uh, the description of the strong angel's feet like Pillars of fire, along with several other descriptors in verse 1, indicate the angel's deity. And now, in connection with Christ's oath in verse 5, it's of significance that pillars are used in biblical symbolism and ritual as witnesses. For example, in Genesis 31 where Jacob and his relatives take stones and and set them up as a pillar. And verses 51 and 52 says uh, the pillar was a witness between Jacob and Laban, remember. The description here uh, in our text of Christ, uh, the strong angel raising his hand, is is a, a direct allusion to Daniel chapter 12, verse 7, who stood above the waters raised his hands to heaven and swore to him who lives forever. These words also echo uh, the prophetic words uh, in the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, verses 40 to 43, where God himself lifts up his hand to heaven and swears as he lives forever that he will judge his adversaries and repay those who hate him. So Christ, the strong angel, swears here that there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, a seventh angel, when he's about to sound, then the mystery is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. When the angel, when the seventh angel, we're in the interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet, when the seventh angel 
sounds, the mystery will be finished. Christ swears. Now the word mystery in the New Testament doesn't mean something mysterious in our modern sense, such as a spy novel or something that we can't understand, but rather something formally concealed, now revealed. It's revelation. When you, when you read mystery in the New Testament, think revelation. In the New Testament, mystery refers to God's revelation of the gospel. That's what Paul says, uh, Romans 16, 25. It's knowledge that God formally kept hidden in the shadows of early Old Testament revelation. But, Paul writes in Ephesians 3, verses 5 and 6, has now been revealed by his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. So this mystery is a broad reference to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but more specifically, it's a reference to this Jew-Gentile dynamic that the Gentiles are going to be brought in to the equation. And this mystery is a major aspect of Paul's ministry to the Ephesians and the Colossians. To Galatians, the Galatians 2, though the term mystery isn't used there, But especially in Ephesians and Colossians, this is a great part of of Paul's ministry to them. This union of believing Jews and Gentiles in one church without distinctions, uh, without distinction. Gentiles who had been strangers from the commonwealth of Israel and from the covenantal promises are now, through the work of Christ, made full sons of Abraham. Heirs of the covenant, on an equal and indistinguishable footing with believing Jews. Remember the new song of Chapter 5 and verse 9, they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And then again in chapter 14 and and. Verse 6, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on earth, to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. John here is 
commissioned to prophesy concerning this mystery here later in verse 11. You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And when the seventh angel does sound, that's what the sounding indicates. Verse 15 here in chapter 11, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. The kingdom of the world, all nations. So that's what Christ testifies here. There's not going to be any further delay here. This refers both to Uh, that there'll be no longer any delay concerning the judgment for which the martyrs cried out uh, back in the the fifth seal, uh, chapter 6 and verse 10, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And it refers to the finishing Uh, of the mystery of Christ when judgment has been carried out on unbelieving Israel in response to the martyrs' cries for for vengeance, then the mystery will be finished With, with the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Then the mystery will be finished. That's what Christ, the faithful witness, is swearing, concerning which there will be no delay. The judgment that is soon coming upon apostate Israel. And John is called as prophetic witness to the revelation of this mystery. Verses 8 through 11 are his recommissioning to this calling. The voice from heaven, speaking again in verse 8, it's the same uh, voice that told John in verse 4 to, to seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them And here the voice tells John to go and take the scroll which is opened in the hand of the angel who stands upon the sea and the land. The angel calls it the scroll as in chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, but John calls it, remember, the little scroll. There's a difference in uh, the words here in uh, the, uh, the original language. And the imagery here, Uh, that we find in this taking and and eating. He says, take it and eat it. It'll make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it'll be sweet as as honey. It comes from from the details of of that passage in Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 9 through chapter 3 and verse 14. We read... 
together this morning. Ezekiel was commanded to take that that scroll that that had been spread out before him, uh, containing the the prophetic denunciation of the rebellious house of Israel, to eat it and go and speak to the house of Israel. And he found it in his mouth, sweet as honey. But when the Spirit lifted him up and, and took him away on his mission to speak to the house of Israel, he went in bitterness, in the rage of his spirit. We read there in Ezekiel's prophecy. And that reference helps us to identify this a little scroll given to John in his commission based on the new covenant to prophesy lamentations, mourning, and woe against apostate Israel of his day. As we noted last week, the little scroll that John took from the hand of the strong angel is likely, therefore, of the book of Revelation, or part of the book of uh, Revelation itself. As with Ezekiel, John tastes it. It's sweet as honey, but his stomach is, is made bitter. And that's not difficult to understand. John was called to prophesy about the victory of the church and of the kingdom of God. He's called to prophesy of the gospel mystery, the the finishing of the gospel mystery, but a necessary corollary to the gospel mystery, to the triumph of the righteous and the triumph of the gospel is the destruction of the wicked. And that pattern holds throughout Scripture in the history of salvation. The same judgments that deliver God's people also destroy God's enemies. Someone has said it well, salvation and judgment are two aspects of the same event. Old Israel had turned from the true God to worship idols and demons. She had become a harlot, as she'll be described later on in the book of Revelation, a persecutor of the saints and had to be destroyed. So while John could rejoice in the victory of the church over her enemies, it would be a gut-wrenching experience to see this once holy city of Jerusalem reduced to rubble. The temple torn down, not one stone left upon another. You remember Jesus had prophesied in the Mount Olivet Discourse. God's people, starved and tortured, murdered, sold into slavery. All the prophets experienced the same emotional wrenching. 
when they foretold of Israel's judgment, which ordinarily involved a a deep-rooted recognition of the two-edged nature of prophecy. And that's what we're seeing here in Revelation. The fact that the same day of the Lord would bring both immeasurable blessing and unspeakable woe. Remember the way Paul puts it as he preached the gospel, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He said it was a savor of life to those who believe, a savor of death to those who are perishing. And this is what now as John is being called, he's being called, he's being recommissioned here. Uh, Verse 11, they said to me, you must prophesy again. Now, he's not saying uh, you've prophesied already here in, in, in the context here of Revelation. John hasn't prophesied yet. All he's done so far is to see these visions and write them down. That's what he's been doing this whole, this whole time. He's been, he's been seeing and hearing visions, and he's been recording them. Well, he's saying, John, just as you have already prophesied, just as John and the other apostle, uh, apostles had already prophesied, as they had already, by the, the, the Spirit and in, in His uh, inspiration, prophesied in the Holy Scriptures, He's saying, now you're going, to, you're going to prophesy this book. You're a prophet of this book. After receiving these impressive revelations of the end of an old system after the old system was done away with, and that's what the destruction of the temple represents. John is prophesying of the the bringing in of the new. He's going to prophesy afresh God's word concerning all nations we read here, many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. a wondrous picture here, a wondrous revelation of Christ. And we shouldn't leave this 10th chapter without reflecting back on how Jesus is revealed here. And it provides a significant lesson with regard to our approach to this this important book. It's not an obscure book. If we Yes, it has a lot of symbols. And yes, it's, we have to discern these symbols. We have to, we have to understand them in, in their proper context. We have to sift through and, and, and put them in their proper place. But we shouldn't get so caught up in, in, uh, in the symbology and the, in the, uh, the, the the difficulty of interpreting revelation that we, that, we, that we miss the revelation of Christ. It's such a wondrous and beautiful revelation 
of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in this book of Revelation. And we, we must be careful, too, not to imbibe in a shallow, futuristic understanding of Revelation that focuses on a misguided view of the, the last things an approach that attempts to tie the content of revelation to contemporary events in history with an emphasis on timelines leading up to the second coming of Christ because that draws us away from revelation's presentation of the exalted Christ And then there there are two important lessons here for us having to do with John's taking and eating the little scrolls. The first is that it's not sufficient to have God's word in hand. I trust we all have Bibles. I have a lot of Bibles. I have a lot of copies of English Bibles, and I have copies of Hebrew Bibles and Greek Bibles. And, and you have copies of Bibles, too. But it's not enough just to have them in our hands. We must take and eat, as John took and eat. We must digest, meaning that we must take God's Word into our innermost being. We must, like the prophet Jeremiah said, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your word became to me the joy and delight of my heart. Jeremiah 15, verse 16. Can you say that, dear Christians? Can you say that God's word is the joy and delight of your heart? When you take God's word in your hands and you read it, Does joy well up in your soul? Is it a delight to your eyes when you read it? In other words, we must take the gospel to heart and we must take it into our inmost being so that it can give strength to our lives and transform us just as food nourishes us and strengthens our bodies. Devotional books can be helpful. But reading a few verses with anecdotes and brief comments isn't sufficient to feed your souls. You must be feeding on the word itself. If you try to eke out a Christian existence on devotional materials alone, you will be undernourished. You must go to the source itself. You must take and eat. Listening to 
podcasts, theological podcasts, is fine. Reading theological books is fine. Reading devotional material is fine, but you have to go to the source and take it in your hand and put it in your mouth and eat it and digest it. The result of feeding on God's word isn't only schooled theological intellect. Yes, we, are, we, we ought to be developing in our theology. But the goal is Christ-like character. That's why we feed on God's word. The purpose of such feeding is to change our being so that Jesus Christ, in all his beauty and glory, shines forth in our character, in our lives. The second lesson of, this, of eating this scroll is that we must witness to others. Of course, this second lesson is dependent on, the, on apprehending the first lesson. We must go first to Christ who holds uh, the little scroll in his hand. The little scroll or, or the little book, as some of your translations call it. The book is, is open to us. It's closed to unbelievers. And that's a remarkable thing. When God does the work of regeneration, when God causes a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl to be born again by his spirit, the book opens. Insight and understanding is given into the book. And that means that we have something to say to the unbelieving world. We may be timid about that. We may think we have nothing to say. But we have the book. And we can say what's in the book. The most effective way to witness to relatives, to friends, to neighbors, to co-workers is to appropriate this book into our lives. We won't persuade them to come to Christ merely by quoting Bible texts to them. Scripture tells us the most effective way to testify about the gospel of Christ is to carry it in our hearts, to live it out, and to speak it forth. The word must become an integral part of our daily lives. And that's what Peter means. When he says, 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify Christ as Lord 
in your hearts. How do I sanctify Christ as Lord in my heart? I use the means of grace. And God's word is among the means of grace that he intends to use to sanctify Christ as Lord in my heart so that others see Christ as Lord in my heart. And so that others, when, when others see that, there's something of an authority in what I say. I have something in my Christian experience to, to, to back up what I'm saying to them. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Peter informs us that all believers are to be apologists in their own right. That's what this word defense means in the Greek. It's apology. Now, that's not an easy thing, is it? It's not easy to speak to others about Christ. But it's clear from what Peter says that we're all called to do that. I don't think there's any question. Peter's not talking to apostles there. He's, uh, in 1 Peter 3.15, he's not talking to uh, teachers in the church. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to believers in Jesus Christ. He's telling us that we're to be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks us to give an account for the hope that's in us. How will we fulfill this God-given responsibility? Well, God, we've said already that we must apprehend the first lesson of taking and eating the scroll. That is, digest it ourselves and take it into our innermost being. But there's another means of grace that Paul says is equally important. Colossians chapter 4, verses, uh, ver- beginning at verse 2, where Paul says, Devote yourselves to prayer with an attitude of thanksgiving. Now, it's interesting here. Paul says in the first place, he says, Pray for us that God will open a door for the gospel. He's talking here about the the primacy of preaching, that the primary means by which God designs to bring outsiders into the church is through the preaching of God's word. Contrary to popular belief today, uh, evangelism is not the primary means of, of gospel witness. Preaching is, but there's a secondary means. So Paul says in the first place, pray for us that God will open up a door for the gospel so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I've also been in prison, that I, make, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. But then notice he turns to the church. He turns to believers. And he says to them, and this is still in connection with prayer. Remember, remember he said, devote yourselves to prayer with an attitude of thanksgiving. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how to respond to each person. 
It's interesting that in both of these places, both in Peter and Paul, both of these, as they speak of the believer's witness, it's in response. We're to make a defense to everyone who asks us to give an account. You'll know how to respond to each person. It's, uh, it's as though they're recognizing that there's going to be a recognition uh, of Christ's likeness in the life of a believer. When we sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, when we uh, conduct ourselves with wisdom, the wisdom of God's word, that there's going to be a recognition. And there will be inquiries coming on the part of those who are outside the faith. Why are you like this? Why do you do these things? Why do you live your life the way you live your life? And they will ask. And Peter says and Paul says that we're to be ready with an answer. And Paul says, we must pray in this regard. Pray for the preaching of the word. Pray with regard to gospel witness. You do not have because you do not ask, James says. Why don't we have more gospel opportunities? Because we fail to ask for them. often is the case. May God grant us that we would take these significant practical lessons that come out of this 10th chapter of the book of Revelation. May the Spirit secure them to our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, as we continue our exposition of of Revelation, we pray that you would help us to see Christ. Help us to see the exalted Christ. Help us to see his beauty and his glory. In the midst of all these difficult things that we we encounter in, in this book, help us above all to see Christ, him crucified, Christ and him exalted, Dear Lord, help us, uh, even as we think of the little book and John's eating it and prophesying it, help us, O Lord, to take this book, to eat this book, to go to the source, to feed upon your word, O Lord, to take it into our inmost being, Make it food for our souls, O Lord our God. And just as Christ is a faithful witness and John was a faithful witness, so make us faithful witnesses. We confess our reticence to bear testimony for Christ. 
because we fear rejection, because we fear ridicule. We ask, O Lord, that you would cause us to be bold, that you would make us apologists, each one in in his or her own right, and that you would enable us by your grace, O God, to be faithful in our testimony, faithful as witnesses to the gospel of our dear Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. Amen.